You're listening to Morning Short, the podcast that brings you one great short story every morning. Available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and any podcast app you like. Today's story is The American's Tale by Arthur Conan Doyle. Before we get to the story, I want to remind you to visit share.morningshort.com and invite some friends to Morning Short. If 10 of your friends sign up using your personal invitation link, we'll send you a free Morning Short t-shirt. So start your sharing at share.morningshort.com. And now to the story. It are strange, it air, he was saying as I opened the door of the room where our social little semi-literary society met. But I could tell you queer things than that are almighty queer things. You can't learn everything out of books, sirs, no how. You see, it ain't the men as can string English together and as has had good educations as finds themselves in the queer places I've been in. They're mostly rough men, sirs, as can scarce speak aright, far less tell with pen and ink the things they've seen. But if they could, they'd make some of your European hairs rise with astonishment. They would, sirs, you bet. His name was Jefferson Adams, I believe. I know his initials were J.A., for you may see them yet deeply whittled on the right-hand upper panel of our smoking-room door. He left us this legacy, and also some artistic patterns done in tobacco juice upon our turkey carpet. But beyond these reminiscences, our American storyteller has vanished from our ken. He gleamed across our ordinary quiet conviviality like some brilliant meteor, and then was lost in the outer darkness. That night, however, our Nevada friend was in full swing, and I quietly lit my pipe and dropped into the nearest chair, anxious not to interrupt his story. Mind you, he continued, I ain't got no grudge against your men of science. I likes and respects a chap as can match every beast and plant from a huckleberry to a grizzly with a jaw-breaking name. But if you want real interesting facts, something a bit juicy, you go to your whalers and your frontiersmen and your scouts and Hudson Bay men, chaps who mostly can scarce sign their names. There was a pause here as Mr. Jefferson Adams produced a long cheroot and lit it. We preserved a strict silence in the room, for we had already learned that on the slightest interruption our Yankee drew himself into his shell again. He glanced round with a self-satisfied smile as he remarked our expectant looks, and continued through a halo of smoke. Now which of you gentlemen has even been in Arizona? None, I'll warrant. And of all English or Americans as can put pen to paper, how many has been in Arizona? Precious few, I calculate. I've been there, sirs. Lived there for years. And when I think of what I've seen there, why, I can scarce get myself to believe it now. Ah, there's a country. I was one of Walker's filibusters, as they chose to call us. And after we'd busted up and the chief was shot, some of us made tracks and located down there. A regular English and American colony we was, with our wives and children, and all complete. I reckon there's some of the old folks there yet, and that they ain't forgotten what I'm a-gonna tell you. No, I warrant they ain't. Never on this side of the grave, sirs. I was talking about the country, though, and I could astonish you considerable if I spoke of nothing else. 
To think of such a land being built for a few greasers and half-breeds. It's a misusing of the gifts of providence, that's what I call it. Grass has hung over a chap's head as he rode through it, and trees so thick you couldn't catch a glimpse of blue sky for leagues and leagues, and orchids like umbrellas. Maybe someone you has seen a plant as they calls the flycatcher in some parts of the States. Diancia muscipula, murmured Dawson, our scientific man par excellence. Ah, die near a municipal, that's him. You'll see a fly stand on that air plant, and then you'll see the two sides of a leaf snap up together and catch it between them, and grind it up and mash it to bits, for all the world like some great sea squid with its beak. And hours after, if you open up the leaf, you'll see the body lying half-digested and in bits. Well, I've seen those fly traps in Arizona, with leaves eight and ten feet long and thorns or teeth a foot or more. Why, they could, but darn it, <laughs> I'm going too fast. It's about the death of Joe Hawkins, I was going to tell you. About as queer a thing as I reckon as ever you heard tell on. There wasn't nobody in Montana as didn't know of Joe Hawkins. Alabama Joe, as he was called there. A regular out-and-outer he was. About the darndest skunk as even man clapped eyes on. He was a good chap enough, mind you, as long as you stroked him the right way. But rile him anyhow, and he were worse nor a wildcat. I've seen him empty his six-shooter into a crowd, as chanced to jostle him a-going into Simpson's bar when there was a dance on. And he bowied Tom Hooper, cause he spilt his liquor over his waistcoat by mistake. No, he didn't stick at murder, Joe didn't, and he weren't a man to be trusted further, nor you could see him. Now, at the time I tell on, when Joe Hawkins was swaggering about the town and laying down the law with his shooting irons, there was an Englishman there of the name of Scott. Tom Scott, if I recollect so right. This chap Scott was a thorough Britisher, begging the present company's pardon. And he didn't freeze much to the British said there, or they didn't freeze much to him. He was a quiet, simple man, Scott was. Rather too quiet for a rough set like that. Sneaking, they called him. But he weren't that. He kept himself mostly apart and didn't interfere with nobody so long as he were left alone. Some said as how he'd been kinder ill-treated at home, been a chartist or something of that sort, and had to go up sticks and run. But he never spoke of it himself and never complained. Bad luck or good, that chap kept a stiff lip on him. This chap Scott was a sort of butt among the men about Montana, for he was so quiet and simple-like. There was no party either to take up his grievances, for, as I've been saying, the Britishers hardly counted him one of them, and many a rough joke they played on him. He never cut up rough, but was polite to all himself. I think the boys got to think he hadn't much grit in him till he showed them their mistake. It was in Simpson's bar as the row got up, and that led to the queer thing I'm going to tell you of. Alabama Joe and one or two other rowdies were dead on the Britishers in those days, and they spoke their opinions pretty free, though I warned them as there'd be an almighty muss. That particular night, Joe was nigh half drunk, and he swaggered about the town with his six-shooter, looking out for a quarrel. 
Then he turned into the bar where he knowed he'd find some of the English as ready for one as he was himself. Sure enough, there was a half a dozen longing about, and Tom Scott standing alone before the stove. Joe sat down by the table and put his revolver and bowie down in front of him. Them's my arguments, Jeff, he says to me. If any white-livered Britisher dares give me the lie. I tried to stop him, sirs, but he weren't a man as you could easily turn, and he began to speak in a way as no chap could stand. Why, even a greaser would flare up if you said as much of greaser land. There was a commotion at the bar, and every man laid his hands on his weapons. But afore they could draw, we heard a quiet voice from the stove. Say your prayers, Joe Hawkins, for by heaven you're a dead man. Joe turned round and looked like grabbing at his iron, but it was no manner of use. Tom Scott was standing up, covering him with his derringer, a smile on his white face, but the very devil shining in his eye. It ain't that the old country has used me over well, he says, but no man shall speak again it afore me and live. For a second or two I could see his finger tighten round the trigger, and then he gave a laugh and threw the pistol on the floor. No, he says, I can't shoot a half-drunk man. Take your dirty life, Joe, and use it better nor you have done. You've been nearer the grave this night than you will be again until your time comes. You'd best make tracks now, I guess. Nay, never look black at me, man. I'm not afeard at your shooting iron. A bully's nigh always a coward. And he swung contemptuously round and relit his half-smoked pipe from the stove, while Alabama slunk out the bar, with the laughs of the Britishers ringing in his ears. I saw his face as he passed me, and on it I saw murder, sirs. Murder as plain as I ever seed anything in my life. I stayed in the bar after the row and watched Tom Scott as he shook hands with the men about. It seemed kind of queer to me to see him smiling and cheerful-like, for I knew Joe's bloodthirsty mind and that the Englishman had small chance of ever seeing the morning. He lived in an out-of-the-way sort of place, you see, clean off the trail, and had to pass through the fly-trap gulch to get to it. This here gulch was a marshy, gloomy place, lonely enough during the day even, for it was always a creepy sort of thing to see, the great eight and ten-foot leaves snapping up if aught touched them. But at night, there was never a soul near. Some parts of the marsh, too, were soft and deep, and a body thrown in would be gone by the morning. I could see Alabama Joe crouching under the leaves of the great fly trap in the darkest part of the gulch, with a scowl on his face and a revolver in his hand. I could see it, sirs, as plain as with my two eyes. About midnight, Simpson shuts up his bar, so out we had to go. Tom Scott started off for his three-mile walk at a slashing pace. I just dropped him a hint as he passed me, for I kind of liked the chap. Keep your derringer loose in your belt, sir, I says, for you might chance to need it. He looked round at me with his quiet smile, and then I lost sight of him in the gloom. I never thought to see him again. He hardly gone afore Simpson comes up to me and says, There'll be a nice job in the fly trap gulch tonight, Jeff. The boys say that Hawkins started half an hour ago to wait for Scott and shoot him on sight. I calculate the coroner be wanted tomorrow. What passed in the gulch that night? 
It were a question as were asked pretty free next morning. A half-breed was in Ferguson's store after daybreak, and he said as he chanced to be near the gulch about one in the morning. It weren't easy to get at his story. He seemed so uncommon scared. But he told us, at last, as he heard the fearfulest screams in the stillness of the night. There weren't no shots, he said, but scream after scream, kinder muffled, like a man with a serape over his head and in mortal pain. Abner Brandon and me, and a few more, were in the store at the time, so we mounted and rode out to Scott's house, passing through the gulch on the way. There weren't nothing particular to be seen there. No blood, nor marks of a fight, nor nothing. And when we get up to Scott's house, out he comes to meet us as fresh as a lark. Hello, Jeff, says he. No need for the pistols, after all. Come in and have a cocktail, boys. Did you see or hear nothing as you came home last night? Says I. No, says he. All was quiet enough. An owl kinder moaning in the fly trap gulch, that was all. Come, jump off and have a glass. Thank you, says Abner. So off we gets. And Tom Scott rode into the settlement with us when we went back. An all-fired commotion was on in Main Street as we rode into it. The American party seemed to have gone clean crazed. Alabama Joe was gone. Not a darned particle of him left. Since he went out to the gulch, nary I had seen him. As we got off our horses, there was a considerable crowd in front of Simpson's. And some ugly looks at Tom Scott, I can tell you. There was a clicking of pistols, and I saw as Scott had his hands in his bosom, too. There weren't a single English face about. Stand aside, Jeff Adams, says Zeb Humphrey, as great a scoundrel as ever lived. You hain't got no hand in this game. Say, boys, are we free Americans to be murdered by any darn Britisher? It was the quickest thing as ever I seed. There was a rush and a crack. Zeb was down with Scott's ball in his thigh. And Scott himself was on the ground with a dozen men holding him. It weren't no use struggling, so he lay quiet. They seemed a bit uncertain what to do with him at first, but then one of Alabama's special chums put them up to it. Joe's gone, he said. Nothing ain't sure nor that. And there lies the man has killed him. Some on you knows as Joe went on business at the gulch last night. He never came back. That air Britisher passed through after he'd gone. They'd had a row. Screams is heard among the great fly traps. I say again, as he played poor Joe some of his sneaking tricks and thrown him into the swamp, it ain't no wonder as the body's gone. But are we to stand by and see English murdering our own chums? I guess not. Let Judge Lynch try him. That's what I say. Lynch him! shouted a hundred angry voices for all the ragtag and bobtail of the settlement was round us by this time. Here, boys, fetch a rope and swing him up. Up with him over Simpson's door. See here, though, says another, coming forwards. Let's hang him by the great fly trap in the gulch. Let Joe see as he's revenged, if so be as he's buried out there. There was a shout for this, and away they went, with Scott tied on his mustang in the middle, and a mounted guard with cock revolvers round him, for we knew as there was a score or so Britishers about, as didn't seem to recognize Judge Lynch, and was dead on a free fight. I went out with him, my heart bleeding for Scott, though he didn't seem a cent put out. He didn't. He were game to the backbone. 
Seems kind of queer, sirs, hanging a man to a fly trap. But iron weren't a regular tree, and the leaves like a brace of boats with a hinge between them and thorns at the bottom. We passed down the gulch to the place where the great one grows, and there we seed it with the leaves, some open, some shut. But we'd seed something worse nor that. Standing round the tree was some thirty men, Britishers all, and armed to the teeth. They was waiting for us, evidently, and had a business-like look about them, as if they'd come for something and meant to have it. There was the raw material there for about as warm a scrimmage as I'd ever seed. As we rode up, a great red-bearded Scotchman, Cameron was his name, stood out afore the rest, his revolver cocked in his hand. See here, boys, he says. You got no call to hurt a hair of that man's head. You hain't proved as Joe is dead yet, and if you had, you hain't proved as Scott killed him. Anyhow, it were in self-defense, for y'all know he was lying in wait for Scott to shoot him on sight. So I say again, you hain't got no call to hurt that man, and once more, I've got thirty-six barrel arguments against your doing it. It's an interesting point and worth arguing out said the man, as was Alabama Joe's special chum. There was a clicking of pistols and a loosening of knives, and the two parties began to drop to one another, and it looked like a rise in the mortality of Montana. Scott was standing behind with a pistol at his ear if he stirred, looking quiet and composed as having no money on the table. When sudden, he gives a start and a shout as rang in our ears like a trumpet. Joe! he cried. Joe! Look at him! In the fly trap! We all turned and looked where he was pointing. Jerusalem! I think we won't get that picture out of our minds again. One of the great leaves of the fly trap that had been shut and touching the ground as it lay was slowly rolling back upon its hinges. There, lying like a child in its cradle, was Alabama Joe in the hollow of the leaf. The great thorns had been slowly driven through his heart as it shut upon him. We could see as he tried to cut his way out, for there was slit in the thick fleshy leaf, and his bowie was in his hand, but it had smothered him first. He'd laid down on it, likely to keep the damp off while he were a-waitin' for Scott. And it had closed on him as you seen your little hothouse ones do on a fly. And there he were, as we found him, torn and crushed into pulp by the great jagged teeth of the man-eatin' plant. There, sirs, I think you'll own as that's a curious story. And what became of Scott? asked Jack Sinclair. Why, we carried him back on our shoulders, we did, to Simpson's bar, and he stood us liquors round. Made a speech, too, a darned fine speech, from the counter. Something about the British Lion and the American Eagle walking arm in arm forever and a day. And now, sirs, that yarn was long, and my cheroot's out, so I reckon I'll make tracks afore it's later. And, with a good night, he left the room. A most extraordinary narrative, said Dawson. Who would have thought a dancier had such power? Deuced rum yarn, said young Sinclair. Evidently a matter-of-fact truthful man, said the doctor. Or the most original liar that ever lived, said I. I wonder which he was. 
Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'd like to remind you to rate this episode five stars on iTunes and to visit share.morningshort.com to invite a few friends to Morning Short. Learn more about the Morning Short Project and sign up for our daily emails at morningshort.com.